Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. We have two very special guests today. Why don't you each introduce yourselves and tell us how you went from writer to writer with adaptation. My name is Bethany Baptiste. I am a kidlet author. I wrote Izzy Hawthorne, Destiny Awaits, which is a middle grade novelization of the Pixar movie Lightyear. And I also have a YA de- debut, Source Books Fire, which is called The Poisons We Drink, which is a contemporary fantasy witch novel about a Black witch that lives in Washington, D.C., and she uses her illegal love potions to poison politicians. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also, my agent reached out to Disney when I was asking for some IP projects and Disney had an IP project that needed to be filled. Your turn, Gigi. <laughs> okay. I'm Gigi Griffiths. I'm the author of The Empress, which is the tie-in with the Netflix series of the same name. And I too have a YA novel coming out next year, which is called The Wicked Unseen. And it is a satanic panic novel about the disappearance of the preacher's daughter and the skeptic outsider who has to figure out what happened. And yeah, I came to adaptation through my agent. My agent was, I guess, known for having authors that do that work, and she brought the opportunity to me. This is a subject that's near and dear to my heart. I also have some of these types of things in the works, and I think it's just so interesting that this, it's an opportunity bomb, I think, when it comes to writing. And so can you explain to us like, how these book deals and film deals were negotiated and how many agents were involved and how was the process for you? In my instance, when I had asked my agent if he knew of any IP projects that he'd think I'd be good for, it took a few months for him to find a editor that was in need of a author. So about two weeks after my book deal with YA Debut came out, he came to me and he said, there is a Disney editor. She would like you to audition for a middle grade book for the Pixar movie for Lightyear. So essentially audition means you give them a writing sample of the genre and or the age category that the IP project will be in. So because it was a middle grade sci-fi book, I luckily had a writing sample that was middle grade and sci-fi. And so I gave them like the first 50 pages of that. And then that was my audition. However, for other people, sometimes the editor or the publisher or the franchise or what have you will actually give a writing prompt to the author. And then the author has to write based on that prompt. Oh my gosh. I was, so, I'm sorry. I was just hoping like you were like, I am auditioning for this book and you had to come in. And I was like, that's amazing. I could totally do that. I have a walk. I was, I'm so glad you asked that question because I thought Bethany and I were talking about the same thing when we said we auditioned and we're not. Um, so my audition, I actually got the scripts for the show and I was supposed to write a portion of the beginning of the novel. They had five authors audition. We all wrote the opening of the novel and then they chose based on that. 
Oh my gosh, I would have loved to be a fly in the room for both you guys doing this. But like, how do you do that? How do you take an opening of a television show or a limited short series? How much script did you have? And what was the process of diving into that character's brain when it wasn't a character you created? So for me, I was told that's why I got the project. To be honest, I read the scripts and I really felt like from the script itself, the characters were really jumping out at me. Like I knew exactly who she was from looking at that scene. I was like, oh, she's opening of the series. You get her hiding from her mother behind the curtain with her little sister. It's a very sweet moment. And it gives you that dynamic of she doesn't want what's happening. She wants to stay young and stay free. And she has this connection with her sister. And so for me, reading the scripts, immediately I saw she the conflict that she was in. And my first read through of the script, all I was doing was making notes about this is how she thinks. This is what she's thinking when this dialogue comes out. This is what she's thinking when this thing happens. And then when I did the audition, because it was chapters from the actual book, they could see what my interpretation of the character was going to be. And when I say that's why they said I got the project. My editor was like, we felt like you understood the characters from the script in such a way that you were going to be able to write the novel quickly and effectively on our very tight timeline. How fast did you have to write it? I got hired for this project in December and I think the final copy edits were due end of March or something like that. I wrote the first draft in 20 days. I I, I felt a little nauseous when you said that. (laughs) Me too. Yeah. What was your deadline? My deadline, I had one month to write the book and then I had one month to revise the book. And then that was it. It was a very last minute type thing. The editor decided last minute that they wanted to write a middle grade version novelization of Pixar. So it was very like quick. They needed someone that was quick. And I didn't mind because one, I was a teacher at the time. So summertime was perfectly fine for me to draft the novel. And then also because it was middle grade, I only had to write 35,000 words. So I felt like that was okay. And I thought that was manageable. Now revisions was something different. (laughs) But yes, it took a month to draft and a month to revise. 5,000 words is still a lot to write in a month. Like most people listening are probably like, holy crap, Bethany. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm a slow writer too. I'm an extremely slow writer. It normally takes me like anywhere from one year to two years to draft a novel because I'm a little bit of a perfectionist and every line has to be perfect. It's my curse, but I'm surprised that I was able to flow through it as quickly as I did. So let's say there's a writer out there nor used to writing at a normal writer pace, maybe a book a year, suddenly opportunity of a lifetime shows up, but they have one month to do it. How do you get that writer from writing a book in one year to writing a book in one month? How much coffee did you go through? Did you sleep? Like, how did you do this? Luckily for me, as I said, I taught. So the summertime was basically my playground. It does help a lot to actually have source material. So what I initially did was I took the movie script and I just did a rough draft version based on the movie script, right? And so then after that, I went back and I started to fill in the scenes, started to fill in the settings, started to fill in the character dialogue, started to plug in original chapters that Disney wanted me to write that are not included in the movie. And so I just went back. But I think it's really important that when you're looking at that blank, 
screen on your computer. It's very intimidating, but I felt like if I did this source material first, then went back, it would be just like almost like working on a zero draft or a skeleton draft or a dirty draft or however people likes to call it. And it really worked out better that way for me. Yeah. So similar for me, though, I would consider myself already to be a fast writer. My drafts are more for in YA. They tend to take me four to six months. And so that's still one month is still quite fast from that. But but having the scripts, it helped a lot. And another thing is that while I was waiting for them to get back to me after the audition, I outlined the whole book. I was like, I know this is going to happen fast if it happens at all. I already have the script, so I'm going to put together an outline. And as soon as they gave me the go ahead and they said, we do want to work with you that same day, I sent the outline to my editor and said, okay, tell me if there's any issues because this is what I'm flying through. That's the difference between you and I, because I was absolutely terrified. I'm a pantser, by the way. So I was absolutely terrified to do a plot because I felt like I was not familiar enough with the movie material. The scripts kept changing. I had only seen screening and it was a very rough draft, like storyboard type like movie screening of the movie once. And I was like, I think it would probably be better if Pixar or my editor actually gave me the plot so that I could work off of that because I didn't want to work on something and then it would have to get approved from the higher ups and then it will trickle down. Like anytime you want to do something creatively to a story that is not yours, it requires a million yeses. And so I just felt like it was easier for just Disney to handle the plot. And then I would just take it from there because I didn't want to just throw myself into this story. And then they get told, no. That's so interesting. I've heard that Pixar in particular, they're on the screenwriting side, they go all over the place creatively. Like they're so, so persnickety and fastidious about what they do that your creative flow is, relies on their creative flow, which back it does back it up for sure. It really does. It was a very interesting experience because when I say from the time that I saw the very first script when I signed on up until actually right when I gave them my final draft, that script changed about eight times, which is very difficult because I... When I was drafting it, I was getting script changes. And when I was revising it, I was getting script changes. And it wasn't like just simple script changes. It was like, oh, this scene that happens at the end of act two is now towards the beginning of act two. And this completely changes everything. So I had to literally, I would write up until a certain point then I would see a script and I'll be like, oh, great. And then I would have to go back and I would have to rewrite up until that point again, just to include those script changes. So it was very interesting. (laughs) Wow. Did you have any way to directly talk with the writer's room while these things were happening? So basically my editor was like the in-between person anytime I, and I asked a lot of questions and that's the other interesting thing is that when I became signed on, the movie was very, very early, very rough draft. Like even though they showed the trailer, the very fancy trailer with Les Lightyear and you think that the movie was done, it was not. It was very far from being done. And they were re- they were redoing that script 
over and over again. So the issue became when you are writing a sci-fi, the world building is key. And so if the screenwriters don't even know the world building yet because they haven't gotten to that point and I'm writing based on what they give me, I was struggling a lot of the times because I had questions they could not answer yet because they were that far behind in the development process. So I would try to take some creative liberties but once again, when you take creative liberties, you have to ask your editor and then your editor has to take it to the screenwriting room and the directors and the higher ups. And then they have to have a meeting and they have to agree to it. And then it trickles back down to you. Yes. And that could take anywhere from one week to an entire month. These little screenwriting room meetings. That <sighs> so it was a very oh, interesting it's situation. It's a writing tornado. You're in a yeah. writing tornado. With like things hitting you. and It was interesting because with the world building, you only have the script. And then because it was like an animated film, they gave me a like a world building concept art packet. And it was like over a hundred concept art pictures of the characters and the weapons and the technology and the settings and all of that. And that was literally the only thing that I had to try and world build, to try and write us, write like scenes match what they were trying to go for. But even that changed. So it was a very interesting process. And I know it's probably different for live action compared to animated films. So I would love to hear what yeah, you Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I don't know if I'm terrified or jealous of Bethany's process because I got no visuals at all up front. So I worked entirely off of the scripts for our first draft. And then even as we started to get into revisions, I hadn't been able to see anything visually. You couldn't go to the set? <laughs> nope. Which is actually, I could have, like physically it would have been possible. I live in Portugal. It was shot in Germany, but no, there was no setup for that. So yeah, I didn't see the actual show or the first couple episodes of the show until we were nearing the end of our like big developmental revision. And so the tail end of that was going back through the script or the book and trying to match up the visuals um, so that it didn't feel incongruous because writing historical, I did have the benefit of the fact that I can work a little bit off of historical research. I can work off of the fact that I've been to Bodishal, which is where a lot of the book is set. And so I had started descriptions that way, but then seeing things on screen, seeing the mood that was on screen, we went back and did another pass just for mood, for costumes, for setting description to kind of line that up. The costumes in that show were unbelievable. They were so beautiful. Yeah. yeah, incredible. And it's so interesting too, because a lot of the time people think historical, they think very pretty. Everyone eats these little treats off of tiered trays. Everything's basically okay. Like nothing really goes wrong. And it, I thought it was just so interesting how there was so much tension in your writing, in a way, there was more tension in the written version than on the screen. And I just thought that was so cool the way that you did that. Yeah, it just it made it so satisfying when we finally see Elizabeth, like she has these beautiful visions of what love is like. And then, wow, I did not see that coming. <laughs> and then mm -hmm. I don't know, I just thought that made it all the more satisfying seeing what was in her head in the written version that way. Um, <laughs> Thank you. That was the real goal. It was to not depart from the show. They, the 
the way they put it to us was don't contradict the show. So you have some creative freedom to do some things yourself, add some deleted scenes, do a little bit more with it, but don't contradict anything that we're doing. And so I was like, I want to just go deeper into how tense the situation must have been for all three of the main people involved. And it's a little bit unusual, I think, in a romance to have not only the two lovers' perspectives, but also have the perspective of our antagonist. And I won't call her a villain. I don't see her as a villain, but but someone who's keeping the lovers from being together a little bit. And so wanted to create the tension by bringing more of her in as well. So can we talk about the kind of projects that are likely to be script to book? How does that happen? How do they decide? How do they know that this is something that is going to benefit the project? And how do you know this is something you want to jump into? Oh, wow. That's a very good question. I'm going to be 100% honest. I would love to also know their thought process. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of it has to do with because they're trying to, I think it depends on the type of project, but also if they're trying to capture those like book readers that are very hesitant to like look at the actual franchise or whatever the movie or the show is. And I feel like it's that they're trying to have some type of crossover appeal that hits like two, two kills two birds with one stone type of situation. I know like for me, my book was actually the very last thing that they developed. They had already did the picture books and they had already worked on the other things. And the middle grade novelization was something that was very last minute. And I wonder if it was because they were trying to get that hype leading up to it because the book came out in April and the movie came out in June and they wanted actually all the light year to come out leading up to it. So I think it was like more of a hype thing. And they were actually very, they were very specific in making sure that any of the plot twists that happened in the movie did not end up in the books. So they, they wanted all the books to exclude like very plot twisty type things so that mm. any questions that the readers might have, they would have to watch the movie to actually see what happened. It's like That's a literacy so technique almost yes. for kids. It's like they, they're leaving like like a breadcrumbs to the movie. Yes. Because it's there is one big plot twist and it shocked me when I read the script and I watched like when I read the script and I was like, oh my God, because you you think after being on this earth for 30 years and you have literally watched every Disney movie and show under the sun, you think you like understand like the technique of Disney storytelling. And I thought I knew who the antagonist was, Buzz Lightyear, the movie, and it was somebody completely different and it shocked me. And so I wanted to include that in the book and they were like, no, we want to exclude that. So people like want to watch the movie. That's so interesting that they think they need to add that hook because the reason I, as a reader, want to watch my movies or like a a movie version of a book is to see it on screen to get the visual element. Like I don't actually need them to withhold something or change something. I want to see how the actor's face looks when that moment happens. I want to see how these people pull off the characters that I've come to love. So it's really interesting the way that they conceptualize readers feeling about movie and book stuff. 
Yeah. I think that for a romance, you also, if you aren't inside the, if you have a stoical male character and on in the show, he's a bit stoical and you aren't inside his head, it feels a little bit different than when you see also the strength and the vulnerability coming together inside the character. I felt like that was something we could really add to his character was a lot of that vulnerability because you don't see it as much because he's trying to be strong, which is the correct way to play that character in the show. But then we can see inside his head that he's, oh my gosh, there's so much going on. And that's the best part about novelizations is you get to tap into those characters' thought process, why they reacted the way they did in the show, but then you actually have that concrete evidence to back it up in the books. And that's one of the reasons why I liked I like writing novelizations because like when you're watching something, you're always guessing and wondering like, why did they do, like, why did this character do this? Why did Mm -hmm. they think this way? Like, why? And then to actually see it play out in a story is completely different because then it adds a completely different light to those characters and their motives and like why they did the things that they did. That's such a good point. And it also makes me realize that maybe one of the reasons that this was a good fit for me, this kind of work, is because I write historical fiction. So I'm always looking at real events or real people and asking myself, okay, why did they do that? And having to figure that out. So coming into this script and having to do that from a script felt a lot like my normal process. There's always questions about IP and what it is and what it means for the writer. Can you go into that just for the writer out there that would like get into this? Um, so from my understanding, IP is intellectual property and intellectual property basically means the idea is not your own. <laughs> you did not develop the idea. And so it can be a range of different things like a franchise, Disney princesses or Star Wars or Marvel or a Netflix movie. Uh, intellectual property just means that you don't own the idea. That's what I took away from it. But Gigi might have a better answer than that. Nope. That's a perfect answer. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's interesting because I'm coming up at it from the different direction and like I own my IP, which is cool. So have you guys, you've gone into other people's IP. Are you taking your novels that you've done as well and turning them book to film? Are you going the other direction as well? For me, my YA novel, I know that I've sent the book off to a film agent to see if they're interested and shopping it around to see if it could be turned into a TV or a movie, but nothing yet. But I would like to, I would love to, I would love to have a limited series, eight or 10 episodes of just like black teens, just yeah. like living their best lives. In- <laughs> just like, we all like to see that. Yeah. Just like set like black witches, just like setting things on fire. Love that for me. Like I would love that for me. But to go back to the previous question, I also forgot that a lot of people think that intellectual property is just franchises, but also there are publishers that develop IP in-house. There are actually many books that people might be surprised about that you think that they were written by the author, like the author came up with that idea, but actually it was actually developed by a editor at a publisher. And then there's also book packagers as well, like Alloy Entertainment or Glasshouse, things like that. So there's like a lot of different ways of there being like IP. Do you think IP is generally better for plotters or pantsers? I think that 
it could really go either way. I think it's great for plotters. I think it's great for pantsers, especially if you're wanting to look at it from a educational perspective. I learned a lot plotting because I got to see how an editor plots out a story because I got to see like an actual scripts and how they have the story beats and how Disney really like uses Save the Cat. Like they really use Save the Cat because they hit the beats, whether it was for the book or whether it was for the script, they literally hit it beat for beat. And I, even though I am not really a fan of Save the Cat because the panther in me is like, no, I began to recognize like how resourceful it is if you're wanting to write kid lit because it follows a very familiar pattern that kids are very familiar with. And it also helps with your pacing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm biased because I'm an extreme plotter and I don't know that I could have written it in the timeline that I did without having those skills. I think I would have freaked out more than I already did. And Julie, to your question, it's funny that you ask about going book to screen. I actually plot all of my books using screenwriter resources. And so I always think of them in both categories and hope that they will also one day be on the screen. I know my film agent is taking The Wicked Unseen out soon for spooky season because it's a very Halloween book. And hopefully we will see a film or series adaptation at some point. And I would love to write it as well. I'd like to get more into screenwriting. Well, I think it's once it's in you, once you have, and this is, I talk about this a lot and we keep saying the Manuscript Academy, we're going to do more with this because I think once you have the film elements in your brain, you can naturally weave them in and it just helps everything. And I think that it, when you can think of characters like that, how you introduce them. Like film does that so incredibly well. And if you watch how film people do it, like you can really use those techniques within your work. So there's so much just crossover. So I think it's good for all writers to actually just have an awareness of both. I think there's a lot of fluidity between the two. So it's really interesting. What are some of those screenwriting resources that you use for writing your books? Yeah. So of course there's the classic original Save the Cat. And I also really, there is a video that you can find online for free by a writer who works with Pixar or used to the, also the guy who wrote Little Miss Sunshine. And he's got, it's called the endings video. If you Google it, you'll find it. And it is about an hour long and he breaks down the structure of several of his favorite films and then talks about how he followed that structure in Little Miss Sunshine. And it is my all-time favorite resource that I use for any sort of plotting. I usually already have some beats. I already have a loose idea by the time I go to that video, but then I go to the video and I will literally take an entire day of watching 10 minutes, pausing it, writing like a mad woman, watching another few minutes, pausing it, writing like a mad woman about all the ideas I have that are coming up and bubbling up for me with that video. And I watch it every single year, at least twice. Sounds like a fun event for us today. Yeah, it's good. I just wrote it down. That is amazing. If you could choose, what's more fulfilling, writing a book or writing a book that you know will be made into a movie or a book that is a movie that you know will be a book? See, there's the humble Bethany and then there's the... <laughs> oh. <laughs> and then there's the, I want it all Bethany. So, Embrace that one. Embrace yeah, that like, one. Yeah, Bethany. I, I want the one at all, Bethany. <laughs> so for the one at all, Bethany, I would love to write a book that was turned into a movie. Like if I knew that if I had an idea, pitched it, and they were like, okay, we'll turn it into a movie and we'll give you like $10 billion. And I'll be like, yes. 
I will write it. I will do whatever you want. That's what I, that's what I would want. But like humble Bethany is, I would just love to write a book and just be, and have that book just be recognized for my craft and for my talent. So that would be my answer, but not humble Bethany, greedy Bethany, Bethany that wants the coin, I would love for it to get turned into a- You're a teacher. Every teacher, like we yeah. all know, we want the coin. <laughs> we want, we definitely want the coin. And it's funny because being a published author is very much like being a teacher. What a lot of people don't realize is that authors, they invest a lot of money in their craft and they also invest a lot of their like book advances into marketing and doing all these other things. And it's very much like a teacher to spend the majority of your money on something to better yourself or to better whatever product you have. And there is no humble Gigi, so I'm sorry to tell you she will not be making it up here. But yeah, no, I too, the dream is book to screen. The Or like in the case of The Empress, having a book and a, a film come out at the same time or a book and a series come out at the same time is really cool to, to have people contacting you and saying, oh, I'm watching first or I'm reading first and see all of those discussions is really fun. So if I could have one of my originals have that kind of trajectory someday, that would be really exciting to me. I love that for you. What is your best advice for writers that want to break into IP? What I would most likely recommend is know what you're comfortable with. One of the mistakes I see a lot of people make is they put, I can write anything. I can write adult, young adult. I can write middle grade. I can write picture book. I'm like, I can do any of that. And then when it comes time for the auditions and they want those writing samples, it they're scrambling trying to figure out let me read a whole bunch of these books over here and see if I can so it's like when you're trying to audition or if you're looking for an IP know exactly what you're comfortable with because that is where you're going to shine you want to put your best work forward and you don't want to say that you are the ruler of all the rings and you <laughs> And really, you can only just wear one ring. And there's okay, that's okay if you can only just wear one ring because there's plenty of opportunities for that one type of book or one type of genre or mm -hmm. age category. So that's very important. And also, I've seen a lot of people believe, oh, I write adult, but since kidlet is popping right now, I'll just try and write a kidlet book. And that always doesn't work because you have to have a very specific voice for kidlet, whether it's middle grade or young adult. And a lot of people think that it's easy to be written, but actually middle grade is one of the most hardest things I've ever had to write. And I love middle grade. So it's, that's definitely something to consider. Yeah, we just had a panel that was all middle grade all the time last night. And our agent guest was saying one of the reasons people want it is because it's so hard to do. They think it's they, and the other thing is, even though you don't have to have an agent to for an IP project, sometimes it is very important to try and go that route so that you have someone to advocate for you at the table. Because when you're presented with a 40 page contract <laughs> and there's clauses and there's 
figures and there's all of these gobbledygook that you have no idea and there's no one there to hold your hand and be like, no, baby, this, this is not it (laughs) and advocate for you. There's a lot of people that sign into contracts and they had no idea what they were signing and they had no idea that they literally just handed over their, the permission for a publisher or a book packager to use their likeness. L.J. Smith, who was the author of Vampire Diaries. And that's a whole research it, research it guys. But yes, like you have to be sure that you know what, what you're getting yourself into. And then also make sure that when you are, if you do get accepted for a IP project, make sure that you know what exactly your the publisher or whoever it is responsibility is, because if they're giving you a pitch and they're expecting you to build the world and build the characters, you're giving them your ideas willingly and then it becomes theirs. <laughs> it's no longer yours. So it's like stuff like that you should consider. I love that. That's all great advice. And I would say if you're really interested in doing IP and you don't have an agent yet, I would take a look at which agents are successfully getting their author's IP and move them to the top of your query list, as long as you're comfortable with the genres and all of the other reasons that you would work with that agent. And if you do have an agent, go to your agent and tell them you'd like to do IP. Um, because if they don't know, they can't pitch you, obviously. And they may be able to, as Bethany's agent did, they may be able to reach out to editors that they know are working on those kinds of projects and say, what do you have? What do you need? And find something for you. My agent was bringing me actually a lot of IP opportunities. This was the third or fourth one that we had taken a look at because that was her wheelhouse. And so it was, I don't want to say inevitable, but it was pretty clear that we were going to be getting IP opportunities for possible auditions because she was out there hustling for those and had authors who did that kind of work. Yes. This was my fourth opportunity to, that I said yes to the first three. I was like, I don't think this is the right fit for me. And I think it's also important if you do get an IP project, don't feel like you have to say yes, because sometimes those IP projects, they're not very good and you should say no. You don't want to work on something that you don't feel passionate about because you're going to be with it for a while. And on the flip side of that, I completely agree. But also on the flip side of that, like channel that confidence of the mediocre white man. And if there's something that someone's, (laughs) if there's something that they're asking you, can you do this? And you feel like you want to do it, but you're feeling that imposter syndrome, Mm -hmm. you can do it. And there were points where my editor was like, I want this to be really like spicy. And I hadn't written anything spicy before. And I said, if you trust the rest of what I can do, I will trust you to help me understand where our like spice level needs to be or our sexiness level needs to be. Spicy. (laughs) Spicy. So a lot of this to me sounds almost like training for the Olympics, right? So you have to go through this audition process. And then once you're there, let's hope you've been training because you have a very short window of time to make it happen. What does a person do now to start that training process so they're ready when the moment arrives? That's a really good question. I would say even if you are a pantser, I would recommend understanding your story beats. And I think that's a misconception that pantsers just go in and just put gobbledygook on the page. But most pantsers do understand story beats. We just keep it in the back of our mind. Okay, we're coming up to this story. We're coming up to the midpoint twist. We're coming up to the bad guys closing in. We always keep that in the back of our head as we're moving forward. But I think it's really important to understand story beats and so that you've got your pacing down, Pat. You don't have to do this, but if you want to practice 
that skill set, taking inspiration from something and writing based on that, which can be something very loose. Like you can be like, I want to take this story I found from history and I'm going to write a short story based on it. Like having to write based on something is a little bit of a different skill. And so being able to practice that, I think can probably benefit you. I like to say that all historical fiction is actually fanfic. And if you are doing something like fanfic or historical fiction and you are writing based on something, you're already building that muscle to be able to write based on another format, such as a script. That's actually a really good point because when you're doing these auditions, whether whether you're given a prompt that you have to write or whether you're actually giving them like a writing sample from something that you've already written before, those first few pages are almost like your resume. You have to make Mm -hmm. sure that those pages are extremely strong. So if you struggle with trying to like sell an agent or what have you on those like first 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 pages, that's something that you really need to work on because similar to myself or similar to Gigi, those first pages are what's going to sell an editor or a book packager or whoever to your work because that's like your, that's like your calling card, your ticket that you need to be sure about. I'm just so happy for you both. This is so exciting, all the things that are happening for you. Did you have a moment in the querying process when you're like, this is terrible, it's never going to happen? Okay, so for my YA novel, it was tough. I was querying my novel in 2020. So it was in the middle of the Black Lives Matter protests and it was in the middle of the traditional publishing promises that they were trying to make for Black authors. And so it was a very stressful time. And I I wanted to walk away from the project many times and I had in the past. I think one of the important things that I had to learn was to make sure that you are doing your research and you're making sure that whatever agents that you're wanting to query, that they are backing up their talk Mm -hmm. so that you're in a, that so that you actually have an advocate that's an advocate and not someone that's saying that they're an advocate. And that's just coming from like a BIPOC marginalized author perspective is that there's going to come many times where you're going to be faced with agents that's or even editors that say things are not good. <laughs> they're not good. They're very problematic. And sometimes they don't realize it's problematic. Sometimes they do realize it's problematic. And so you want to make sure that you're that you are picking the right person to be in your corner to advocate for you. So that's definitely something to consider. Do you have yeah. tips for how people can? Because how do people know? So um, for me, I know joining a query group helped me tremendously. A lot of people, like when I first started on Twitter, I didn't know that there was a writing community. I was just like tweeting out into the Twitter sphere. And I didn't know that there was like this adjacent community over here where everyone was supportive and amazing and they had advice and everyone was amazing. So joining a query group helps a lot, especially if it's a query group that has a lot of marginalized authors or authors that also share your identity. That helps a lot. In those querying groups, it almost becomes your whisper network because you have all of these different types of people that are in this query group. They might hear or they might have had to have dealt with an agent that gave them some very problematic feedback and that agent is on your list. And if you talk about it, then they'll be like, don't do that agent. (laughs) And it helps you tweak and modify It also helps to be 
in a website like Query Tracker, that was like my go-to. Going on Query Tracker and seeing what type of what the agents were requesting and seeing the user comments are very telling. It has all <laughs> the And that's something that no one can delete. So scrolling down and saying, okay, this agent did this. They responded at this time, things like that. Because for marginalized authors, especially authors that have disabilities or mental illnesses or something like that, because that's what I have. I have a mental illness. It's very anxiety inducing to not know where you are in a queue. And so having those kinds of systems where you can figure out where you are, it puts ease on you. And yeah, those are like the main two that I would say to protect yourself. And I'll add to that, that you all should follow Bethany on Twitter, because if I can brag on you for a second, Bethany is always showing up for the community. And so you're going to find other community around her of people who are also showing up. And so I say, follow Bethany. Thank you. I think you should tell us your Twitter handle now that Um, we're- It's story sorcery. (laughs) It's story sorcery, but I think it's important. And I will say that For people who feel it to call out people in the community, it can take a hit on your your mental health. I've had to call out transphobic agents before. I have had to call out like racist agents before. It's very taxing, but it's important because a lot of the information that could really help a marginalized person move through the community, it's kept in whisper networks. And sometimes there has to be someone that like bursts from the whisper network and be like, do not go to this person. Do not go to this agency. Do not do this. Do not do that to protect marginalized authors. But it is very taxing, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah. And to the question about having a moment where you wanted to give up, I quit for nine months. (laughs) So during querying, it was the level of demoralizing that I couldn't handle. And I am also mentally ill and I knew that I was not going down an okay path. And so I set my book aside. I still loved it. And I said, you can come back to this anytime, but you're going to do a project that's just for fun, that you're not trying to do anything else with. And so I started a food blog and I did that for about nine months. And then when I was feeling up for it, I applied for a mentorship program. And mm-hmm. it was my last ditch effort for that book because I, I still loved that book. I still believed in it. And I got in. And that was my tipping point that got me to my agent before I obviously from there ended up getting the IP project later. Mm-hmm. Walking away is so important because I walked away too from November 2019 up until May 2020. I had trunked my book and Sometimes that's really important because you hear people say, you got to write every day or you got to do this every day. And it's like, no, you need to take care of yourself every day. And sometimes that includes writing every day if you want to. And sometimes it's okay if you don't write every day. That's very important. My gosh, this has been, I think that everyone's going to really love this. You both have opened up a world. I guess I didn't even realize myself and I'm rid of this, how it all worked and how people got these gigs and the opportunity, but also how difficult it can be once you're in it. But, you know, we're always thinking of how do you make a living as a writer, right? Like, how do you, like, things like this really can move your bottom line as staying in writing. It's, it can be a little bit of a meal ticket to get you from your own creative product projects to the next. So thank you for sharing. It's really interesting. It's a way to get your foot in the door. And there's a lot of unagented authors 
who were able to get IP gigs with some of the biggest franchises like Disney and things like that. And that's how they were able to get their foot in the door. It's great. Um, it's a great way to diversify, especially if you're in a position where if you're on sub or if you're querying and you're, there is like a lag with what's going on with your original fiction, it's a great way to get your name out there with editors because potentially the editor that you are doing your IP with could be the editor that has your original fic, like you could use for your original fiction. So it's a great way to make connections. Yeah. And it opens doors sometimes that you don't even know that you wanted to open. So for me, I live in Europe, but I'm from the States and I debuted in both continents at the same oh, time. Cool. And that was something I I knew I wanted to have books out in both places. I knew I wanted to try and sell translation rights, but it was really cool to have it all happen at one time. And it was because of this IP opportunity and how big it was and how Netflix's release was worldwide that made that possible. I know that my agent often on Twitter, John M. Cusick, he does tweets where he talks about how to get into IP and how you can query him with your writing sample. And he'll keep you in mind because there is an IP database that has gigs and things like a lot of the times you can go to different like book packagers and they'll have an application process that you can do, or you can go to agents that specialize in that. And you don't have to be agented, but you would have to just send them your writing sample and the different age categories and genres that you're comfortable in, and they'll keep you in mind when there's projects. I've had a lot of people out there are going to start researching as soon as they turn off yeah. this episode. <laughs> Your agent is just going to get 30 right. emails the second <laughs> I know John's going to go. I'm so sorry. We love John. We love John. John just prioritized Bethany's emails and it's fine. Exactly. Everyone say that Bethany sent you. Oh my gosh. So once again, tell us where to find you both online. Um, so my username on Twitter is at Story Sorcery. And then also my website is BethanyBaptiste.com. And I'm at ggriffiths.com and on a variety of social media, on Instagram, on TikTok, on Twitter, at ggriffiths or at dot ggriffiths on some of them if someone stole my name before I got there. Ah. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. We really appreciate this. Thanks for having yeah. us. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.